Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Speaking the Language of White America, Violence and the End of Slavery. We'll open with Double Consciousness off of Christian Scott's 2019 release, Ancestral Recall. In the August Atlantic Monthly of 1897, W.E.B. Du Bois published Strivings of the Negro People, in which he introduced the term double consciousness. Quote, This sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One feels his Tunis, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, unquote. To be both black and American, an unresolved Tunis, still. In her book, Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence, Kelly Carter Jackson contends that the history of abolitionism, of anti-slavery, in the U.S. has been a tale told by white supremacy, that it was seen as the white man's burden to give the blessings of freedom. Yet to be black and an American, male or female, was to assert instead that freedom must be taken. Black abolitionists had to throw off the restrictive tactics of moral suasion and pacifism preached by white abolitionists that had yet to alter the terrible fact of bondage, still enslaved, still unequal, still not citizens protected by the Constitution. This was war. To make a slave was to steal the natural rights of men and women and justify it with legal and moral fictions. To drape kidnapping, torture, rape, and murder inside the gift of the civilizing mission. By the 1850s, the population of enslaved Americans had increased exponentially, and such legislative efforts as the Fugitive Slave Act and the Supreme Court's 1857 ruling of the Dred Scott case effectively voided any rights black Americans held as enslaved or free people. As conditions deteriorated for African Americans, black abolitionist leaders embraced violence as the only means of shocking Northerners out of their apathy and instigating an anti-slavery war. James McCune Smith put it this way, Our white brethren cannot understand us unless we speak to them in their own language. They recognize only the philosophy of force. Or put it another way, our history is clear, violence abolished slavery. Kelly Carter Jackson is a 19th century historian in the Department of Africana Studies at Wellesley College and co-editor of Reconsidering Roots, Race, Politics, and Memory. And she joins us today via Skype. And now, speaking the language of white America, violence and the end of slavery on Interchange on WFHB. Kelly Carter Jackson, welcome to Interchange. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, happy to be here. Hey, Kelly, how about an easy question? He says with a laugh, why black abolitionists? So, uh, that's an easy question for me. It's one of my favorite questions to answer. (laughs) Good. Uh, I think you can really answer this question in in four parts. The first is that, um, why black abolitionists? Because they're the first abolitionists. No one needs to tell the enslaved that slavery is wrong or that slavery is evil. They know that for themselves. And they're the, the first to really advocate for their own freedom. 
I think the second is because when we look at what black abolitionists do as activists, they really set a template for how we see black activism going on for the next 100, 200 years. A lot of times my students will look at my work and they'll say, oh, that's just like the civil rights movement. And I'm like, yes, but 100 years earlier. (laughs) So I really want them to understand that You know, black activism does not start in the long freedom struggle or during the civil rights movement, but that we can look to black abolitionists and leadership for their for their role and their template and their blueprint in achieving freedom. Uh, The third point I think is really important is that black abolitionists bear the brunt of pro-slavery violence. So when we think about these anti-abolitionist mobs that are happening all throughout the 1830s and the 1850s, It's black people who are being targeted. It's their businesses, their homes, their churches, their schools that are being burned down to the ground as a result of abolitionist resentment. Um, And so it doesn't mean that white abolitionists don't face violence, but not to the certain level and extent that black people do. Yeah, it's like we can. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Lastly, I just say um, they're important because I think when you focus on black abolitionists, you can overturn the myth of the white savior. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say in in part uh, something similar to that, uh, thinking about violence visited on uh, abolitionists. You know, our, our general history gives us uh, Charles Sumner being caned on the Senate floor. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and that's 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 kind of it, right? So, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but it's an important point, right? And uh, and one in which we we try to figure out how how we go back and and get some of this history where where we reflect on who actually is uh, not only bearing the brunt of all this, but sort of taking charge of it as well. Um, one of the things that you point out in the book is that. Um, that there is history here that black abolitionists use to sort of give themselves strength as well, even even the history of a quote-unquote white America, right? The idea of the American Revolution and the Founding Fathers is on everyone's lips all the time in this country, and it's that very revolutionary spirit, it's those words that the uh, Founding Fathers give to us in terms of revolution that give black abolitionists power as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think... You know, black abolitionists are looking at the founding fathers and they're saying, co-sign, we totally agree. Give me liberty or give me death. Mm-hmm. And and they believe in that wholeheartedly. Uh, but it's not the only revolution they're looking at. Mm-hmm. I spent a good bit of time talking about the Haitian Revolution and how um, while we can look at the American Revolution for sort of providing the rhetoric for understanding liberty and equality, it's really Haiti that sets the template and the precedent for, for establishing a free black nation um, that not only abolishes the institution of slavery, but actually gives equality to former slaves. Mm. Uh, so Haiti is extremely important, and it's also uh, the revolution that put the fear of uh, God into southern plantation orders as, owners as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, Haiti is like the proverbial boogie, boogeyman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I say in the book that... Um, I think Haiti was not just a noun, not just a person, place, or thing. Haiti was a verb, Mm. right? So when people talked about Haiti, they talked about the fear that came along with a black, brutal rule and all of the rumors that spread about the violence that was happening in in Saint-Domingue, also known as Haiti. Mm -hmm. Um, And that terrified uh, white Southern um, slaveholders into thinking that, you know, if this can happen to the French— 
maybe it can happen to us as well. Mm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest is Kelly Carter-Jackson, historian in the Department of Africana Studies in Wellesley College, author of Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists, and the Politics of Violence. Uh, So we mentioned decentering the abolitionist movement, sort of decentering the white voice, the white spirit of it, in a sense, to find its actual uh, strength in in black abolitionists. But there is a partnership there, obviously, as well, uh, especially in particular in, in the Quaker community, right? Mm-hmm, for sure. I mean, when the white abolitionist movement is formalized in the 1830s, um, black abolitionists are their number one partners. And so when we think of the history of the Quakers, the Quakers are kind of the first religious group to really get on the bandwagon with abolitionism and talking about the evils of slavery. Um, but when the organization becomes the American anti-slavery um association, that's when you start to see more like cross-cultural collaboration uh, between black and white activists. Um, But I try to tell my students all the time, there's not a stereotypical abolitionist. You can be black or white or free or born enslaved or fugitive or wealthy or poor or woman. Um, It didn't really matter. There were hundreds of abolitionists. And so I would never want them to think that the stereotypical abolitionist is a white male or even a white Quaker, Mm -hmm. um, because there were some Quakers that were apathetic towards slavery. Sure. Well, we did a whole show on uh, Quaker slave owners. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, certainly not. Um, So uh, your book opens with a kind of call to arms. Uh, It's uh, David Walker's The Appeal. That's, uh, I think, 1829 when that was published. This is a, an actual call to 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 violence, to to stand firm against slavery in the only way that uh, I, I suppose David Walker felt could make a difference. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important when reading David Walker because he writes, I would say, next to Henry Harlan Garnett, one of the most radical. Uh, writings of the 19th century. Um, But I think what people are quick to go to is this sort of like, he talked about violence. He said, use violence. But really what he's talking about is what I like to call protective violence Mm. or this collective self-defense and that he's not saying slit your master's throat for the sake of, you know, Mm -hmm. for the sake of slavery. He's saying, if we can't abolish slavery, peacefully, then you give us no other option but to use warfare because slavery is warfare and ought to be approached as such. And so the idea of self-defense or collective defense um, or what I like to call protective violence um, is completely legitimate to him. And he rationalizes it by saying, like, this is our God-given birthright to protect our mothers and our wives and our children. Um, And so I think that it's radical if you think of black people using violence for anything as radical. But if you think of it simply as the protection of the oppressed and the marginalized and people who are trying to preserve their own humanity, then it's actually really quite rational. Mm. Now, uh, Walker's appeal, as I said, was, uh, what is it in a sense, hushed up or they it didn't get as much, uh, 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 I guess, uh, interest or... Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was wildly popular, mm. but 
highly controversial. Right. So, you know, this was a pamphlet that had to be smuggled in to the South. Mm. People talked about it in whispers. You didn't want to announce what you had. Um, even David Walker himself took a great length of secrecy to hide the pamphlet. He worked in a clothing shop and he would sew his pamphlet on the inside of sailors' uh, uniforms to smuggle it into the South so that other people could um, read it. Mm. He also wrote it in a way where if someone was illiterate, they could hear it being read and it's meant to actually be heard more so than it's meant to be read. So it sounds a little different when you're reading it out loud as opposed to reading it to yourself. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think there was a lot of controversy. I mean, this pamphlet is what sparks a lot of the gag laws that we see happening all throughout the South, the prohibition of being able to have abolitionist literature anywhere in the South or anywhere um, in Congress. Uh, it becomes a really big deal. That's an important point. Uh, gag laws in particular, the idea that uh, this e essentially creates a kind of censorship uh, of speech. Yes, yes. And that's why it's it's a big deal when, you know, um, some of my students are, are from Illinois. I used to live in Illinois. And um, aside from Charles Sumner, we always talked about Elijah Lovejoy. Mm -hmm. He was the white abolitionist who was killed by a mob. Um, and this was when they destroyed his printing press for the fourth time. So they understood very much that the pen was the sword. And so every chance they got, they tried to destroy his printing press. And it was the fourth time where he, you know, comes out armed with the gun purely to defend himself and maybe to scare off the mob um, that they wind up taking his life and his press. But uh, what was most disturbing was the propaganda, the abolitionist propaganda that was being sent all over the country. Mm. So that's Elijah Lovejoy was in Alton, uh, Illinois, actually yes. on, on the river there. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, this is a, a point in the book where you start to, I guess, juxtapose or counter uh, counterpose the um, uh, Love, Lovejoy who takes up arms and uh, William Lloyd Garrison who, who sort of is, criti is critical of this, right? Uh, to and, and we need to talk about Garrison, obviously. Uh, we'll hold him for the next segment. But he's critical of this for, for not being a Christian act. Oh, yeah. He says, you know, Lovejoy is a martyr, but strictly speaking, he's not a Christian martyr. And he says he can't, you know, praise the minister who took up arms in self-defense. And he did not believe in retaliating. He did not believe in, um, in any form of violence, even if that violence is used to protect yourself, your family or your community. He's a turn the other cheek kind of guy. Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> Turn everything and see what happens. Uh, let's uh, let's use this time. Let's uh, that's a good time for a break. So let's take a break. This is Wade in the Water, performed by Mavis Staples, off of the 2008 live album release Hope at the Hideout. More on Black abolitionists and the politics of violence when Interchange returns on WFHB. Stay with us. Trouble 
Support for WFHB, support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas, in-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Speaking the Language of White America, Violence, and the End of Slavery. And our guest via Skype from Wellesley College in Massachusetts is Kelly Carter Jackson, author of Force and Freedom, which seeks to decenter the normative history of abolition as led by white leaders, and even to decenter some of the black leaders that have been lifted into exceptionalism. Uh, in our first uh, segment, we were able to, I, I guess, give a brief sketch of the background of abolitionism. Um, and uh, sort of focus on black abolitionists uh, taking charge as they could and and trying to get underneath the story of white abolitionism uh, while, of course, uh, understanding that uh, white abolitionists were were, uh, good actors in this as well, although we might uh, might, um, cavil on that a bit. And so uh, uh, Kelly uh, Carter-Jackson... Uh, let's uh, let's go to I guess uh, William Lloyd Garrison as I I suppose the primary white abolitionist that many people might actually know. Yeah, he is. He he's sort of the the go to. I mean, I think uh, when I think of the abolitionist movement, I think of William Lloyd Garrison, and I think of the radical Republicans. I think of you know Charles Sumner or Thaddeus Stevens. Mm. Um, or maybe you think of Uncle Tom's Cabin or things of that nature. But um, Garrison definitely dominates the movement in terms of his sentiments towards moral suasion and how he believes that slavery will be abolished by morally persuading slaveholders that slavery is wrong and evil and a sin. Um, And so his ideology really sort of monopolizes the movement for for decades, I would say, um, at least into the 1850s. And so um, so I start with him because he's a great way to talk about this dueling divide of how we think about the end of slavery coming about. Mm. So uh, uh, let's be more clear, I think, on moral suasion, right? So, so Garrison wants to just 
just teach those slave owners that they they need to be better people. Is that it? Yeah, it sounds. I mean, today I think we think that's a bit ridiculous, but mm-hmm. he believed in um, slavery as a sin, and furthermore. At the moment in which the abolitionist movement is really having its genesis, the country nationally is experiencing uh, what we call a second great awakening, which Mm. is this great religious revival where preachers all over the country are basically telling people to repent, that Christ is coming back, he could come back tomorrow, and don't let him come back and find you a slaveholder. Mm. And so, um, and so for you know, very small, small exceptions, there are a couple of small-time planters that do feel this impulse and have a change of heart and wind up freeing their two slaves or their three slaves when they die, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or things of that nature. But for the most part, the planter that owns you know, 20, 30, 50, or 100 slaves is not going to be compelled um, by this kind of spiritual spiritualism that's taking place. Um, but he believed in it. Garrison believed in it fervently. He also believed in, in not returning violence for violence. So in turning the other cheek, even when he was attacked, you know, Garrison's almost lynched. Um, and he still does not believe in fighting back. It's, mm. it's quite remarkable, his commitment to his beliefs. Well, he's also anti-politics, right? Yes, he believed that the Constitution uh, was completely pro-slavery. And after, I believe it's the Fugitive Slave Law, he actually sets the Constitution on fire. Mm. So uh, he was, I mean, he was a radical, even though we might not always agree with his politics. I can appreciate, you know, his steadfastness and his, his core values. They stayed the same all throughout his life. Hmm. Well, uh, as I said, uh, I think one could argue there is a problem here when we think about uh, uh, a way to convince people of an, a wrong that is entrenched and that is on its face uh, a wrong, you know, on its face an evil, uh, to imagine uh, people as property and then to find ways to think about it differently or to argue it, to have to argue about that fact is is just really ridiculous, right? So even in yes. even in the context of, of those particular... People like to say, well, uh, put yourself back in those times. I'm like, well, I think uh, pretty much everybody knew it was wrong. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. so I don't think there's a way to argue differently about it. Um, yeah. Uh, so, but the, here is the issue: moral suasion is a delay. Moral suasion is, you know, is is like saying uh, we can't have slavery be done right now because it'll cause problems. It become, yeah. you know, it's that's an argument too. It's moral suasion to me it becomes almost the same kind of argument as the economic argument or the argument that that to to stop slavery is to not only harm harm the enslaved people, but to harm everybody else in the economy as well. And, yeah, oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. I think there's this belief that, you know, um, and I can't remember who said it, maybe it was Martin Luther King Jr., but he said, you know, in the face of justice or in the face of injustice, patience is not a virtue, it's mm. a vice. Right. And um, that you cannot encourage people to wait for their freedom, to wait for their justice. Um, And I think the same thing applies in the 19th century when we're thinking about slavery. You know, someone who's enslaved, who's been separated from their child, who's just faced a beating, um, can't wait another 10 years, 20 years, can't wait another moment. And so that sense of urgency is so clear for African-Americans. And I also say in the book, I say, you know, if 
if moral suasion is the house that William Lloyd Garrison built, black people are merely renters, right? Mm -hmm. They don't really own these ideas. They're supportive of, of Garrison because they believe he's an ally and he wants to help. But when they're faced with the mob, when they're faced with the slave catcher, um, for them, it's always about flight or, or fight. Mm -hmm. And most of them um, choose to stand their ground. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Kelly Carter-Jackson, a historian in the Department of Africana Studies at Wellesley College and author of Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. Uh, so uh, Garrison and um, moral suasion hold sway for such a long time, but it's also uh, it, it like the, the heroes of this movement also are uh, black abolitionists. So, you know, we're stuck with thinking of Frederick Douglass here as well as being, uh, at least initially, uh, being a, a Garrisonian, right? Uh, he is a, uh, a moral suasionist as well. Yes. So when Garrison starts out in the movement, he gets recruited by uh, William Lloyd Garrison. And Garrison really treats Douglas like his protege. And Douglas becomes the poster child for the movement. His narrative gets published. It becomes a bestseller. Um, and really, he becomes the student that sort of exceeds beyond the dreams of the teacher um, because Garrison takes on, I mean, Douglas, sorry, takes on such celebrity. Um, and because Douglas was enslaved himself, he can speak firsthand of the violence that he witnessed, the violence that he experienced. Um, and so as slavery progresses and expands throughout the country, uh, you see that by the time you get to 18, 1850, you know, slavery has really gotten worse. And the movement's been you know, working for reform for the past 20 years, and they've not seen any major changes, certainly not politically or economically, even socially. Um, and so Douglas thinks Douglas thinks that other options are, are necessary. And it's not really until you get to the fugitive slave law that Douglas has this about face moment. Um, but even before that, we see that Douglas is a renter when it comes to moral suasion, mm -hmm. because there's times when he was attacked by a mob in Pendleton, Indiana in 1843, and and he jumps into the mob and starts fighting. Um, the times when he was enslaved, and he talks about his famous fight with Mr. Covey, and he says that is the moment he felt like he was a man. Mm -hmm. So um, so violence has a very interesting relationship for Douglas that he can't uh, really pivot away from in the way that Garrison can. Right. He's he's an interesting character, uh, contradictory, contradictory like many of us are in in so many ways. And uh, but it is part of the sort of pulling away from uh, being a, a celebrity or being cheered by uh, white abolitionists in many ways. Yeah. 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 He has to contend with you know that fame. Yeah, that's a part of his issue as well. He does. And it's funny, too, because other black abolitionists like Henry Highland Garnett really called Douglas out. They're mm -hmm. like, you're a fame whore. <laughs> OK, that's not I'm not. Quoting. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think that's in the, in the documentary record there. <laughs> yeah, yes, not yeah. exactly what he's yeah. saying, but they they're, you know, Garnett, I mean, really uses some harsh words. He calls Douglas a coward. Mm. And he basically says, like, you won't speak up to violence because you've been seduced by fame, you've mm. been seduced by celebrity, and you love the clap of the audience. And I mean, he really goes in deep on him. And I think that there's validity to what Garnett is saying. Right. You know, he's saying, don't get so caught up in this um, 
wealth and their praise and their hand claps and forget about the people who are in bondage and what they've gone through and um, that millions of people are still stuck without the possibility of escape uh, and without the possibility of using anything other else, other than else other than else than force. <laughs> yeah, so, there, yeah, there are no options. Uh, you don't yes. get to vote. You don't have any rights. Uh, so what else is there to do? Uh, exactly. so I had just finished uh, David Blight's uh, biography of Douglas and one of the things that, that struck me throughout was the the sort of funding nature again of white abolitionists and uh, philanthropist Garrett Smith in particular uh, was 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 giving money constantly to many uh, uh, abolitionists uh, and constantly to Douglas as well and Douglas throughout is 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 somewhat always begging for money from Garrett mm-hmm. Smith it's very frustrating to read it and think uh, here's here's a guy that's like you know the order for the movement and he's he's literally asking for ten dollars from yeah. a you know what would be today I guess at least a multi-millionaire uh, a Garrett Smith yeah it's kind of a, a yeah diff- for yeah, sure yeah yeah. Douglas is, is so um, complicated. I also read David Blight's biography. I loved it. It's good. I yeah. thought, I mean, it's a thick, yeah. thick biography, <laughs> yeah. um, but it's so, it, it reads very quickly and it, and it just gives you, I think, a different perspective on Douglas that we don't always appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, he doesn't, Douglas has never had a day of formal education in his life. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't really have a formal job, like like a carpenter, let's say, or a skill in the way that we would think of a, a blacksmith or someone who is, um, you know, working for income. His skill, his talent is his words, right. his voice. And he has to be on the lecture circuit. He's constantly gone away from home. Right. And preaching abolitionism is the only way that he can make money. Right. Um, and so, it, yes, it's very interesting to me to see how Douglas has to, in this very paradoxical way, use the institution of slavery in order to provide his own income. Mm. Well, he is also a fine example of, of as you say, using words, uh, having uh, t- uh, started a paper, taken over a paper, merged with another paper. Uh, mm-hmm. Throughout his whole career, he's also writing editorials constantly. Uh, yes. And this is a this is a common feature of of the period. Obviously, there's no internet. There's there's you know these broadsheets yeah. and papers that are constantly printed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For I, sure, I, I was just, and it's hard yeah. work. Uh, yeah, well, I was just going to say, I looked at one the other day, you know, you can download a lot of these digital copies, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, they hand, you know, they have they put all these letters, like, these are hand presses, right? And and they're just like such large, you know, these large papers with, with tiny little prints, uh, and I was like, oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's really, I mean, being an editor or publisher at that time is very expensive. You know, it's not, not everyone can afford to mm-hmm. buy the newspaper. Um, so a lot of times you're finding yourself in debt. Um, so yes, it goes without saying that this is not, being an abolitionist is not a profession for the faint at heart. No, not, not at all, not at all. It's time for another break. This is Follow the Drinking Gourd, performed by Richie Havens off of the 1991 release Songs of the Civil War. More with scholar and author Kelly Carter Jackson on using force for freedom to offset the force of bondage. Stay with us on Interchange. Follow the drinking gourd Follow the drinking gourd For the old man is coming just to carry the freedom Follow the drinking gourd 
When the sun comes back and the first quail calls, follow the drinking gong. For the old man is waiting just to carry you to freedom. Follow the drinking gong. Follow the drinking gong. Follow the drinking gong. For the old man is waiting to carry you to freedom. Follow the drinking gong. Well, the river bank makes a mighty good road. Dead trees will show you the way. Left foot, peg foot, traveling on. Follow the drinking gourd. Follow the drinking gourd. Follow the drinking gourd. For the old man is waiting to carry you to freedom. Follow the drinking gourd. Well, the river ends between two hills. Follow the drinking gourd. There's another river on the other side. Follow the drinking gourd. Follow the drinking. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about black abolitionists and the politics of violence. I'm joined via Skype by Kelly Carter Jackson, author of Force and Freedom, published in 2019 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, we just heard Richie Havens follow the drinking gourd. Uh, Kelly Carter Jackson, this is a song that uh, I think is used as uh, what uh, a message to enslaved people from uh, in the Underground Railroad space. Is that correct? Yes. So uh, these songs are so powerful. I, I feel like in my class, one of the things I love to do is play uh, music for them. Sometimes I'll use like the Fisk Jubilee singer. Mm. Sometimes I'll use Mahalia Jackson. Uh, but songs like these were quite common and popular, particularly among the enslaved. And they were used to insert coded messages about uh, where to go, where not to go, um, what was safe, what where you could hide, what road to follow, what river to follow, what star to follow. Um, they gave really cryptic instructions, but if you knew the code, uh, they could help you get to the north, they could help you get to help. Um, one of the reasons I love the film um, Harriet, I don't know how many of your listeners have seen the film. Um, the Harriet Tubman film? Yes, the Harriet Tubman film with um, Cynthia Erovo. Mm. Um, throughout the film, she's singing um, music and she will, you know, sort of hide behind a tree and sing a couple verses of a song. And people know exactly what she means when she sings, um, you know, different verses of the song. And so um, sometimes she's telling people she's going away with the song. Other times she's telling people that I'm coming, be ready at night. Um and so it was just a really unique way of being able to give a direct message, a public message, uh, but yet still be um, still have the the intent of the message kept private from the master or the overseer. Mm. The drinking gourd, I think, is the either the Big Dipper or something like that. 
Yes, yes, yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so we've talked uh, already. We mentioned the Fugitive Slave uh, Act of 1850, and it's that act in particular that kind of that really ramps up the violence. Uh, and so, let's talk a little bit about the Fugitive Slave Act. It's it's got its uh, I guess its origins actually in the Constitution itself, as you already talked about Garrison say, saying the Constitution was already uh, sullied and an evil document because it contained a fugitive slave clause in there as well. Yes, yeah, so the the fugitive slave law is actually an old law that goes back to about 1793. And if you've read um, Erica Armstrong Dunbar's Never Caught, um, it's a really it's a phenomenal book. But she talks about how George Washington even tried to enforce this law to get his runaway slaves um, to come back to them. And mm. so um, it's a law though that never really had teeth on it, meaning it was difficult to enforce. So slaves could run away. And as long as they could get to a free state, um, they could find freedom. So in 1850, with the the Compromise of 1850, one of the caveats was re um, or doubling down on the uh, fugitive slave law. So it basically said there are no statute of limitations. It doesn't matter if you ran away, you know, five days ago, five years ago. It doesn't matter if you were living longer in freedom than in slavery. You could still be caught, captured, retrieved, and sent back south. Um, It also made basically Canada the new Mason-Dixon line. Mm. So it was the only place that you could go where the Canadian government refused to comply um, with this law. So... um, enslaved people, former enslaved people, fugitives, and even free people kind of only had two options. They could stay and fight it out, or they could flee and go to Canada, and a good number of them actually do. Um, But in terms of white Northerners, I think the law is really important because if a U.S. Marshal, um, say they see an enslaved person or a fugitive named Bob, and they'll say, hey, you look like Bob, are you Bob? and say that fugitive starts running away, then they could deputize anyone on the spot and say, hey, you, John, help me go get Bob. And so, um, and John would have to comply. And if he didn't, he could face a $1,000 fine or six months in prison um, for not helping. And so the North hated this law because they said it made them de facto employees of the South or de facto employees of slaveholders, um, and they did not want to be involved. And it radicalized a lot of people who were apathetic before the law. So it's it's a game changer in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was, uh, yes, uh, the the our famous Americans coming out of the woodwork here to start talking about how bad these laws are. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest is Kelly Carter-Jackson, historian in the Department of Africana Studies at Wellesley College, author of Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. Uh, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson himself comes out and talks badly about Daniel Webster, and that's, I suppose, a slap on the wrist to Daniel Webster, who probably could care less about what Emerson (laughs) says about him. Uh, But the the article and law in particular is interesting. I, I, I was I actually have been reading another book about uh, law at this time in Massachusetts, and I think uh, it was um, Lemuel Shaw, who was the chief justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court, who you know f- tried his best, it seemed always, to find ways to free uh, fugitives or free enslaved people who happened to be in Massachusetts where there were no slaves, right? So they'd, they'd abolish slavery in Massachusetts, 
if you brought your enslaved uh, person with you into Massachusetts, they were uh, allowed to go free. So, so if you yeah. if you actually you know brought uh, a child or a slave uh, uh, with you to uh, uh, by vo- by voluntarily, uh, then Massachusetts could set that child or other other person free. Uh, but if they ran away, they couldn't. So, so yeah. it's like the the way the laws were parsed were were. I mean, it's just fascinating. Uh, the yeah, way, it, it, yeah, there's so many really good stories about how the abolitionists are like trying to work around mm-hmm. these sort of absurd laws. But um, even in in Pennsylvania, I believe there was a certain amount of time you could be in the state, mm. and then if you were there longer than say 60 days or 90 days, um, you would be free. So when George Washington is in the White House in Pennsylvania, he's literally swapping out slaves like every, you know, 60 to 90 days to keep them from being freed while he's in Pennsylvania. Oh, it's, my gosh. It's, Crazy. Mm. Well, uh, I don't want to get away from this particular segment uh, without talking about the uh, kind of resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act. As you said, you know, this is where uh, this decade in particular, the violence was really ramped up. This act itself is kind of an act of desperation um, uh, by the South as well uh, and by the North, I suppose, in this Compromise of 1850. Uh, that you know, there there are uh, many instances where where Black abolitionists do actually protect them, uh, protect fugitive uh, slaves, runaway slaves, et cetera, whatever we call uh, the enslaved that are trying to escape to, to freedom and, and to a free life. Uh, one in particular uh, is uh, in Boston. Uh, Lewis Hayden is, is the key figure there. Do you want to talk about Lewis Hayden? Oh, man, I love Lewis Hayden. Lewis Hayden, when I started doing this research, you know, I thought Frederick Douglass was like, the greatest things in sliced bread. <laughs> but Lewis Hayden has really sort of usurped him for me mm. in a lot of ways. <laughs> and I think that's because he's he's so radical and he really sacrifices everything to help um to help fugitive slaves. And so there are a number of cases where fugitives come to his home and he gives them food, clothing, shelter, he gives them whatever they need to either establish themselves in Massachusetts or get further north um, to Canada. The uh, Crafts, which are um, a famous runaway couple, they escape from Macon, Georgia. They make their way all the way to Boston and stay at the Hayden home. They're actually married in in, in his living room. Um, but some of the things that Hayden does, I think, is remarkable. Like, he keeps uh, kegs, two giant kegs of gunpowder um, by his door so that when fugitive, when slave catchers come to his home, looking for fugitives, he would answer with a candlestick and he would say, you know, I'll blow up this whole house before I give you any fugitives. Um, One line, I think I heard this from a a tour guide. They said, you can leave in peace or you can leave in pieces. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a line from a movie. Yeah, Yeah, I know. So he, you know, he always packs a gun on him. He instructs others to do the same. He has bodyguards set up, you know, on almost every corner in black communities to be on the lookout for safe catchers. Um, and when he sees his friend who, um, you know, Shadrach or Fred Wilkins, who gets kidnapped, um, he actually kills a U.S. Marshal. And that's one of the things that I reveal in the book is that um you know, there is a scuffle over, I believe it's Anthony Burns, not Shadrach, it's Anthony Burns that's being kidnapped and being um, 
they're attempting to send him back to his home state of Virginia. And um, Lewis Hayden doesn't have a bullet. He takes this chig, which is like this jagged piece of metal, loads it into his pistol and shoots the U.S. Marshal. Um, and the U.S. Marshal winds up bleeding out instantly. They think he hit his ephemeral artery and he, mm. artery and he dies. Um, but people kept saying, like, no, you didn't kill him. He was stabbed. And he was like, no, it, it wasn't a clean cut because I didn't have a bullet. So I just used a jagged piece of metal. Mm. <laughs> and I I shot him like and he admits this in a letter and i'm like oh my gosh hating you're such a boss <laughs> like, you know he um he really did not um you know uh, a coward to any kind of slave catcher and mm-hmm. and i loved how he his courageous efforts really helped save a number of black people in the city of Boston. Mm. Now, there are many examples uh, like Lewis Hayden as well, and it's uh, unfortunate we can't get to them. Uh, the Jerry Rescue was interesting as well. The Christiana yeah. Revolt as well. Jerry yes. Rescue is uh, Jerry Rescue's in Syracuse, is that right? Syracuse, New York. Yeah. They bum-rushed the courthouse and uh, wind up saving res- uh, Jerry and <laughs> getting him off to a life in Canada. Uh, but they did this a lot. They would find out about someone who had been kidnapped and was being held in a prison cell and then a bunch of um, men would get together and they would get a battering arm and they would bum rush the prison and break him out and Mm. sometimes if it was a man they would throw a bonnet over his head to disguise him and Mm. then get him to freedom Um, but they did this on numerous occasions yeah the uh, the the goal too is to put the fear into man stealers as well yes man man stealers and I want to make this clear man stealers of all colors so A lot of times black people were used as slave catchers because they could win the trust of um, fugitive slaves. And so when communities like um, William Parker found out that there was a black man who was sort of, you know, um, trading, um, uh, selling out uh, black fugitives, you know, first they gave him a warning and told him to get out of town. And then when he didn't do that, they literally like kidnapped him in the middle of the night, took him out to the forest Mm. at like 2 a.m. and flogged him. Mm. (laughs) So I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) But it just goes to show you, it did not matter if you were a white slave catcher or a black slave catcher. If you were a slave catcher, you were going to face consequences from the black community. Mm. It's time for our final break. This is John Brown's Body, performed by Jimmy Smith from the 1964 album, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Stay with us for more Speaking the Language of White America, Violence and the End of slavery when interchange returns. interchange comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976. Located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com.
Welcome back to Interchange. Today's guest is Kelly Carter Jackson, author of Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. Kelly's joining us via Skype from Wellesley, Massachusetts. Our last segment uh, of the night, it's unfortunate it goes so fast, but uh, you can, of course, pick up Kelly's book, Force and Freedom, and find out more about Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. Um, we're trying to understand what this means, the politics of violence. You know, we we kind of skipped over it, or just it's just kind of there in this conversation. Um, what what does it mean for politics and violence to be together in this in this particular way? That's a really good question. You know, I think a lot of times I sort of assume <laughs> that people know, but I think I need to be clear that when I'm talking about politics, I'm not talking about Republican or Democrat or sort of the ways that we think of like you know political contestants. Uh, what I'm thinking of is the idea of violence and how we use violence oftentimes as a way to communicate our political um, motivations. And so I talk about violence being a political language, that what do you do when you don't have the ballot, when you can't vote, when you're not considered a citizen, or in worst case, you're not considered a human being, how can you advocate for yourself? And so violence becomes a way of communicating or of at least grabbing the attention of those who are in power. So I talk a lot about, you know, how should the oppressed procure their own power or how do the powerless procure their own power? How should the oppressed respond to their oppression? Um, And a lot of that has huge political implications, social, yes, economic, yes. But the way that we think about these ideas um, and the way that they get implemented or play out politically um, is so important to me. And so when I look at this moment of the antebellum period, um, which is intensely political, I mean, from the 1830s all the way up through the Civil War and even past the Civil War through Reconstruction, we're constantly thinking about these questions of of oppression and how do the oppressed respond to their oppression and how do the powerless procure power and how do we use violence and when is violence effective and what does violence mean? Um, And so I really wanted to play around with these ideas and to start thinking about them in ways that I don't feel the the field has really addressed. Mm. I think that we've been a little timid about talking about violence because um, we're so used to dismissing it as being bad or wrong or evil. Um, And I wanted to say, well, what happens when you use violence to bring about a greater good, to bring about emancipation? Um, And what is the American Revolution without violence? So, um, you know, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, uh, Americans have a love affair with violence. I mean, we love we love give me liberty or give me death. You know, we love sort of the way that violence vindicates or the way that violence proves something. Um, and so I wanted to try to nuance and complicate that conversation without making it seem like um, like black people were being fanatics. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to really sort of give a rationale to the actions that they were taking. And then even take it into the 20th century, I think we're way too dismissive of the rioter, right? We look at them and we see someone who's like throwing rocks or, you know, stealing TVs and we're so quick to dismiss them. Um, but it's MLK, it's Martin Luther King Jr. that says a riot is the language of the unheard 
A riot is the language of the unheard, meaning this is what happens when we don't um, empower the oppressed to be able to speak through traditional channels. Mm. Well, let's move to violence uh, in, in I guess, the most um, perhaps famous way uh, in this in this story in some ways, right? John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Yeah. Uh, it lives in, in, again, I think, in our in our uh, knowledge as a, as a, a nation. It's a, one, I'm sure, is in most textbooks. Uh, John Brown is uh, variously portrayed as uh, the first terrorist um, yeah. uh, as well as the uh, greatest freedom fighter uh, the country has known. Um, again, lauded by all our transcendentalist friends th- from Thoreau to Emerson and so on, uh, but of course pilloried as well. Um, mm. So John Brown is, of course, a white abolitionist, but uh, as uh, I think both Fred du- Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois noted, he was the, the, the closest to a black man a white man could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the first time I was introduced to John Brown, I was in college at Howard University, and the um, grad student who was teaching the class said, I'm going to tell you about the coolest white man that ever lived. His <laughs> name was John Brown. <laughs> and he started it just like that. And I was like, who is this person? And I got so engrossed in him. I wound up writing one of my um, senior theses on John Brown. And that is actually what sort of jumped off maybe the origins of force and freedom. Because mm-hmm. when I was writing that paper, um, it occurred to me like, wait a second, John Brown is not really a leader. He's really a follower. Like he's taking everything that black people have either done or discussed or talked about and is attempting to put that into action. And so the chapter that I write about Brown is really about a way of even decentering him as a as a hero or as a, a character and saying like instead of looking at John Brown as this white man who leads this raid, what if we look at him as someone who's symbolic of all of the political and intellectual and ideological work that black people have been doing for decades mm. and how he's simply trying to take those ideas and put them into place. Now, he doesn't do it successfully, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but in looking at that, I think if we can look at Brown in a different way and to see him more as an ally, I think it's a powerful way of looking at the raid overall and what was actually effective about the raid. Well, it's, uh, of course, arguable that it was successful. He's the martyr that brings on the Civil War to a lot of people. So perhaps uh, it was a successful raid or a successful yeah. act in the first place. Um, but yeah. let's also let's also talk about how uh, John Brown, we've got a couple minutes about how John Brown uh, was funded. And uh, a lot of times we uh, you hear, and there have been many books written about these fellows too, these secret six uh, benefactors of John Brown, uh, from Theodore Parker to Thomas Wentworth Higginson, I think Frank Sanborn as well. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly all of them, but uh, you know the truth is that you know he had other funding and, and other supporters, and these Secret Six weren't quite as important as people make them out to be. Oh yeah, I mean when the the biggest I think takeaway from that chapter is Mary Ellen Pleasant. Mm. So Mary Ellen Pleasant is a black woman. She's an abolitionist. Uh, she becomes very wealthy. She's an entrepreneur. Uh, she helps set up one of the first banks of California, 
And she is heavily invested in making sure that John Brown is successful. And she donates about $30,000 of her own money um, to help him be successful in this raid. And, you know, it always jars people to know that the single largest contributor to John Brown's raid was a black woman from California. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But it's I mean, it's absolutely true. And what she does is remarkable. And I think it's not just that she gives so much money, but the fact that, you know, this is a black woman who was also committed to armed resistance and understood the risk involved, understood what was taking place. Um, she said she would have given him more money if she could. Um, on her headstone, it reads, and this was one of her last wishes and testaments, um, she just wanted her headstone to say that she was a friend of John Brown's and the greatest friend that we could possibly know, um, especially given what she sacrificed in order to make uh, part of the raid happen. Mm. So uh, to me, that's just, you know, it gives me so much pride to know that, like, it's not just black men who are invested in armed resistance, that black women sometimes have more reason than black men to want to take up violence and to retaliate when they have their children stolen away from them when they are facing sexual assault, when there's so much of attacks on their body physically, sexually, emotionally, um, that black women are invested in the use of violence as well. And Mary Ellen Pleasant exemplifies all of that. Great. It's a good way to end. Uh, that's That's got to do it. We're out of time. We'll close with John, Col- John Coltrane's song of the Underground Railroad, which is said to be based on the melody of Follow the Drinking Gourd. Thanks to Kelly Carter Jackson for spending time with us discussing her 2019 book, Force and Freedom, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. It's a truly enlightening work, Kelly. Thank you for it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. We had two studio engineers tonight, Dan Withard and Sydney Foreman. Cade Young is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.